You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Good morning, Highland. I know Dale Wallace introduced me earlier, but if you're like me, whenever Dale starts talking, I kind of tune out. So I'll introduce myself to you again. My name is Stanton. I've been a member at Highland for two years. My wife and I have been coming here. And at the end of the day, at the end of the sermon, if you don't really care for me very much, we have a six-month-old baby. Um, You can come meet her and see her, and I think you'll like me a little more. You may be wondering, what authorizes you to be up here? What gives you, Stanton, the authority to be up on stage preaching God's word to me and bear with me, I'll say that it's because I've been given power. Not power from John Durham, but power from the Holy Spirit from on high who's come into my life and given me victory over a substance use disorder, victory over suicide, and has made me almost a decade sober from drugs and alcohol. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. God's mercy has stretched out to me and has healed me and has saved me. I found myself in a deep, dark pit, and he's brought me out of that pit and set my feet upon a rock. And he's given me power to overcome my addiction, but he's also given me power to do so much more than that. He's given his disciples to do so much more, and he's given you, Christian, you, disciple, to do so much more than you could think or imagine. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, that's where we're going to begin. Luke chapter 9, we'll begin there, and then we'll end up camping out a little longer in Luke chapter 10. But we're going to begin in Luke chapter 9, if you'll read with me. Verse 1. And he, Jesus, called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. First, before we go any further, we must establish where does power come from? A better question would be, who does power come from? We see it right off the jump in verse 1. Jesus gives the disciples power. Jesus is the author and source of power. You are merely a steward. If you think you've achieved some power based on your own merit, wealth, position, title, race, gender, here are two things. One, you probably need to hear the gospel again. And two, you should listen to how Jesus responded to someone who had a similar thinking. Pontius Pilate is interrogating Jesus in John chapter 19 before his crucifixion. And Pilate says, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus' answer is wonderful. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. True biblical power is not a product of performance, but a precursor of it. 
true biblical power is not a product of performance, but a precursor of it. We see it in John 14. Jesus asks the Father to give them a helper. That's the Holy Spirit, full of power. In Acts 1.8, after Jesus resurrects, he appears to his disciples. He says, you will receive power. When the helper comes upon you. And then in Luke 24, 49, again, after Jesus is resurrected, he visits his disciples and he says, behold, I am sending, which means I'm going to send. I haven't sent it yet. I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. What Jesus is saying is not necessarily don't do anything. Don't go anywhere until you receive this power from on high. What he's saying is you can't. You can't do anything. You can't go anywhere until you've received this power from on high from the Holy Spirit. So the biblical witness is saying, the power you have is not yours. It's given to you. You're in possession of it to do God's bidding. Let's jump to Luke 10. Turn a few pages to Luke chapter 10. And this is where we're going to spend a majority of our time. It's a similar commissioning of the 12. Jesus is, is going to commission another group of people in a very similar way. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After this, now after this is, yes, after Jesus commissions the 12 and gives them power and authority. But immediately after um, is, we're going to look at it in a little bit, is There are a few people that want to follow Jesus, but they first want to go do some other things. We're going to look at that in a minute. So after both of these things, let's read. The Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Some manuscripts say 70, others say 72. The ESV says 72. And if you think it's a coincidental number... I would encourage you at a later time uh, to go read Genesis chapter 10. After the flood, after Noah builds an ark, erects an ark, and delivers his people from, from a worldwide universal flood that wipes out all of civilization, civilizations, there's 72 nations or 72 generations that then make up the entirety of the world. And so what Jesus is saying is that this number 72 is not coincidental. It's not by accident. I am taking my message and my kingdom throughout the entirety of the world. This is a foreshadowing to the Jews, to these disciples who are Jews, that's saying my message is going not just to the nation of Israel, but also to the entire world. Let's keep reading verse two. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is urgency. This is strategy. Farmers will understand the horticulture references here about if I, if I reap the harvest too soon, it's not ripe enough. If I wait too long, it's spoiled. So I need to keep watch. I need to keep a weathered eye. I need to watch the weather. I need to watch my fences. I need to watch the soil so that I can reap at the most opportune time. As I mentioned before, Jesus refers to this need for urgency in just a few verses prior. One guy comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I want to follow you, but first let me go and bury my father. Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. You come and follow me. If you think that's harsh, most likely commentators say that this guy 
This guy's dad wasn't going to his dad. This guy was not going to his dad's funeral. He was more so waiting around for his dad to die so that he could receive the inheritance. Furthermore, another guy, another guy comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I'll follow you, but first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus uses another horticulture reference and he says, no one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Right now, go. Verse three, let's keep reading. Go your way, behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Christian, you are no different than a disciple. Acts eleven twenty eight says that disciples are first called Christians in Antioch. So if you're identifying yourself as a Christian, you are then identifying yourself with a disciple and you're throwing your lot in with the 12 and the 72 who Jesus tells them, spoiler alert, there will be danger. You will encounter danger. There will be resistance. And just so we're clear, danger for Christians in the 21st century is much different than danger for the disciples in the first century. Disciples in the first century are going out and Jesus is knowing that they're going to experience excommunication from their families. Many of them are going to be tortured. Many of them will die. Many of them will be beaten. Many of them will be stoned. They will be heavily persecuted. And yet Jesus still says, go. I'd be remiss if I didn't make a comment about what happened to the church during the first 313 years before Constantine issued the Edict of Milan. The church, because of the heavy persecution in the midst of great persecution, in the midst of great resistance, guess what? Grew the most. The church Thrived. The, the church excelled whenever there was the most opposition to their message. First century disciples risked torture and death, and yet here we are afraid of the awkwardness that would come from talking about our faith at work, school, or amongst our family over the holidays. What if, instead of looking for the safe and comfortable places to minister to, we went and looked for the dangerous and uncomfortable You want to know if you're smack dab in the middle of God's will? Look around and ask yourself, are things easy, safe, and comfortable? Or is there resistance and danger to this message that I bring? As we continue in verse 4, we're going to look at four things that Jesus gives his disciples power to do. In a world that's obsessed with power, in a world... That's asking who has power, who doesn't have power. It's paramount that we see how the 12 and the 72 wielded their power. Let me also take a minute to add that the writer Luke is very concerned with order. In chapter 1, verse 3, it's not on your screen, but, but, but Luke says, It seemed good to me to write an orderly account for you. So Luke is concerned with the order of things, and so are we going to be this morning. There's going to be four fruits of power, four evidences of power that we're going to look at that I would say are linear and that they build upon one another, and they all exist so that the fourth thing can happen that we'll talk about here in a little bit, okay? So the first fruit of power, the first evidence that I, a disciple, you, a disciple, have received power is the sacrifice and surrender of comforts and pleasures. The 
sacrifice and surrender of comforts and pleasures is the first fruit, the first evidence that I've received power. Verse four, let's read. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Between the 12 and chapter nine and the 72 here, the charge of surrender and sacrifice is significant. No staff, no bag, no money, no shoes, no extra clothes. Don't greet, any, don't greet anyone on the road. I've thought about this. What if Jesus came up to me and said, hey, Stan, I'm going to send you on this journey. I'm going to send you on a long journey. You're going to be a messenger for me. It's going to be hard. You're going to encounter resistance. But I want you to go now. Leave. First thing I'm thinking is, do I get a carry-on? It, is it, is it $25 for my first check bag or do I get that free? Like, what, what do I need to pack? What do I need to take? I alluded, I mentioned earlier, my wife and I, we just had a baby. She's six months old. Her name's Waverly. If I could, I could just talk about her the whole time, but I'm not. Um, you should have seen us the first time we decided to venture out of our home and take a trek to the grandparents' house. We decided to take this long trek from Hewitt to Woodway. For those unfamiliar with the Waco geographical terrain, Waco to, or Hewitt to Woodway is about two and a half miles. We packed down the SUV. We had that thing full. Both dogs were in there. We had our wallets. We had our changes of clothes. We brought food for us and the baby. You know, we had our toiletries. We brought the computer in case we needed to do some work. And this was all just to go two and a half miles down the road. And yet, Jesus is now telling his disciples, I want you to go all throughout the nations and take nothing. Why? And I can almost hear Jesus' kind spirit, tender spirit, but also jealous spirit say, because I want you to rely on me. And I want you to trust in me instead of trusting in yourself and relying on yourself. James 2.5 says that God chooses the poor of this world to be rich in faith. So those who are having to rely on the Lord day by day for sustenance are consequently Rich in faith because they see the Lord regularly provide for their needs. And as we move on, we're going to see furthermore that Jesus is saying, I want you to rely on me by relying on the hospitality of someone else. And most likely someone else who is different than you. Verse 5. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. The second fruit of power, the second evidence that you have received power is that you eat whatever is set before you. If you're like me, you're probably like, oh, I have that power. (laughs) You put some food in front of me and your boy's going to eat it. Like, it's just how it is. It's simple, right? So yeah, of course, of course I have that power. Of course you have that power. But as we're going to see, Jesus is saying so much more than eat what is set before you. Implicit in this command is to remove all social barriers. And as we foreshadowed earlier, to start ushering Gentiles into the flock. This would be a very hard thing for Jews to do. It'd be a much harder thing for them to obey. As Jews, 
the 12 in chapter 9, the 72 here in chapter 10 have strict dietary prohibitions. These dietary prohibitions are what set them apart and make them holy. The ancient Hebrews associated these and certain foods as abominations and those who partook of certain foods as abominations. In case you were wondering, for Jews that meant no catfish, no bacon. No, yeah, I lost some of you at bacon. I lost me at bacon. No bacon, really? No shrimp? Nothing with shells. Subsequently, Jews who either ate these foods or interacted with people who were eating these foods were deemed unclean and were prohibited from entering the temple for worship. That may not seem like a big deal for you because, praise the Lord, we have this man named Jesus Christ who's made a way for us to approach the throne of God with confidence. At any time, at any place, we, Christian, who have made a profession of faith, have access to the Lord. We can cry out to him. We can call out to him because of the great sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Not so the case with Jews in the first century. They had one opportunity each year at the feast of the Passover to enter the temple and have communion and fellowship with God but only if they were clean. Only if they hadn't eaten any of these prohibited foods. And so, can you imagine looking forward eagerly to having communion and fellowship with the Lord, and then Jesus comes in and says, eat whatever is set before you. That'd be a hard thing for me. I hope it'd be a hard thing for you to do something that would inhibit my communion with the holy God. The disciples would risk rejection from their community, ridicule from friends and relatives, persecution from religious leaders, and as we mentioned, exclusion from temple worship. Are we willing to do this? Are we willing to get uncomfortable and risky for the kingdom? The third fruit of power, the third evidence that God has given me power, the third evidence that God has given you power is power to heal. He's given you power to heal. Five simple words at the beginning of verse nine, Jesus says, heal the sick in it. No doubt the disciples were given the power to literally cure diseases and physical ailments and deformities. And let me make it very clear that God in the 21st century is still using and wielding his power through his disciples to heal. For those of you who are sick, suffering, have chronic illnesses, have addictions, cancers, ailments, there is still and will always be a balm in Gilead for you. For those of you who think the COVID pandemic is bad, listen to the plight of first century Jews and Greeks who had no thermometers, no stethoscopes, no x-ray machines, no labs to test blood and urine, no no vaccinations, no antibiotics. Illness and plague struck with devastating results. And you know who the medical experts were during that time? The priests. Someone was sick, Someone had an ailment, they took him to the priest. Church, you do not want John Durham helping you with your medical problems, okay? (laughs) Praise God for modern medicine. 
Jesus is so concerned about healing because it's arguably one of the greatest disparities at that time to which there is no solution. People are suffering and dying from ailments and illnesses that we would call common colds today. And Jesus had compassion on a hurting and dying world. If you didn't know, he has that same compassion today on a hurting and dying world. Something I think is is interesting is that the Greek word used in verse 9 to heal is where we get our word therapy from. And it's a little ambiguous in its interpretation. Sometimes it does mean to heal or to cure, but oftentimes it's used to mean to serve or to be an attendant. So when Jesus tells the disciples to heal, he very well could be saying, hey, I want you to go and cure them. But he could also be saying, I want you to serve and attend to their needs. Rodney Stark, the writer of a book called The Rise of Christianity, said that the early Christian movement gained credibility, at least in part, because of the way Christians cared for people during some of the worst epidemics. So it got me thinking, is there a time where Jesus uses a Greek word that exclusively and specifically means to heal or cure. And what I found was a Greek word, aeomai, and I found two fascinating verses where he uses this word heal or cure. The first is in Matthew 13, 15. Jesus actually makes a reference to Isaiah 6, where Isaiah is pleading with the nation of Israel to return to the Lord. And he says this, For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself, talking about Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. The word healed here in these contexts is referring to healing a broken relationship. Ultimately, a broken relationship with God. And isn't this the kind of healing we need today? In the 21st century, in a world gone crazy, there are broken relationships everywhere. Relationships between family members, political parties, races and ethnicities, church denominations, generations. The chasm between old people and young people today in the church is more vast than it's ever been. Young people obey the charge of James to visit widows in their distress. Reach out to the elderly and have fellowship with them. We're more divided today than we've ever been. And we, God's disciples, need power to die to ourselves and journey towards healing. Jesus thought the same thing. And so he cries out to the Lord in his priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verses 22 and 23. And listen to this. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. And listen to this. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus is literally saying that the world will know that God loves them and the world will know that God sent Jesus by the way you love one another, by the way you're united with one another, by the way we are one and reconcile with one another. He gives the disciples power to heal 
and he gives you this power as well, which leads us to our fourth fruit of power, our fourth evidence of power. Remember, the last three fruits, the last three evidences are things that exist so that this can exist. The fourth fruit of power, the fourth evidence of power is to proclaim the kingdom. The fourth fruit of power is that we, with our mouth, with our words, tell of the kingdom of heaven. And guess what? We mentioned it earlier. There will be danger. Let's read, picking up in verse 9. And say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Jesus, why would he say, whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, unless he knew that they were going to be rejected. Jesus literally knows beforehand that many towns that the disciples go to, they will be rejected. They'll be persecuted. Yet, we're afraid of rejection. And Jesus is saying, it will happen. It's going to happen, but I still want you to go. I still want you to tell what a great opportunity we have coming up to tell of his kingdom. We have a great opportunity in a little over a month. In a little over a month, we will celebrate a historic inauguration of power. And if you think I'm talking about mid-January, I'm not. I'm talking about late December when we celebrate a historical inauguration of the birth of our King, Jesus Christ, the true manifestation of God's power and wisdom. And how is this power made manifest? Gregory of Nyssa describes it like this. You should see it on your screen. God's transcendent power is not so much displayed in the vastness of the heavens or the luster of the stars or the orderly arrangement of the universe or his perpetual oversight of it. But it is displayed in his condescension to our weak nature. We marvel at the way the sublime entered a state of lowliness and while actually seen in it, did not leave the heights. We marvel at the way the Godhead was entwined in human nature and while becoming man did not cease to be God. Church, the wonder and power of Jesus Christ is actually displayed by his surrendering of it. The wonder and power of Jesus Christ is actually displayed by his forsaking of it. And this is the proclamation. This is the gospel that although he, Jesus, existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This power, this sovereign, this man, Jesus Christ, 
many of you here today are acquainted with. Some of you think you're acquainted with it, but aren't. And some of you have never been. Whatever category you find yourself in, hear this. That he loves you. And he longs for you. And behold, he stands at the door and he knocks. And if any of you would open the door, he will come in and will dine with you and will have fellowship with you. Christ took his power and forsook it so that you could be lifted up. And he commanded his disciples and he commands you to do the same. Lay down your power so another can be lifted up. Lift up the stranger, lift up the immigrant, the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, the hungry. Use your power that God has given you to forsake your comforts and pleasures, to eat what is set before you, to heal all so that you can have the respect, the trust, and the authority to proclaim the kingdom, to proclaim this person, to proclaim this man, Jesus Christ, to all the world. Would you stand and pray with me? Oh, powerful, sovereign one. Have mercy on us. I pray that those in here right now who don't know you, who are against you, who are even now starting to consider you, remind them of your tender compassion for them. May your loving kindness Fill them and overflow them with joy and wonder at the resurrected power that you bring. As we worship, may we soften our hearts to the power of your spirit in Christ's name.